as we enter God's word. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we pray again that by your Holy Spirit you would speak through it to each one of our hearts, Lord. I ask that you would give me uh, your strength and your conviction, Lord, to speak this word clearly and boldly as I should. And I pray that you would speak to each one exactly where they are, Lord, that they would hear from you today. I pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, have any of you heard the story of Alexander and the horrible, terrible, not good, very bad day? Has anyone heard that one? All the parents are giggling, and some of the older ones too. Good. It's a classic. It's a story about Alexander. And Alexander was a boy about seven or eight years old, and he had one of those days when everything went wrong and just one disaster after another. Nothing went right. For instance... When Alexander woke up in the morning, he discovered that he had gone to bed with gum in his mouth, and when he woke up, somehow it was in his hair. Then when he got out of bed, he tripped over his skateboard, and then he dropped his sweater into the sink where the water was running. Then he went to school, and he had a horrible day there too. After school, he had a terrible experience at the dentist's office. Then came supper, and he said, We had cauliflower for supper, and I hate cauliflower. Then my bath water was too hot, and I got soap in my eyes, and I lost my marble down the drain. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow that he said I could have, and my Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue, and the cat decided to sleep with Nick and not with me. All in all, it was a horrible, terrible, not good, very bad day. And finally, when Alexander came to the end of the day, he heaved a great sigh of relief, and the last page reads... I think I'll run away to Australia. Now, I don't know about you and uh, running away to Australia, but has anyone ever had a day kind of like Alexander's day? Anyone ever had one of those? One of those horrible, terrible, not good, very bad days? Well, I think all of us have. And at the end of those days, do you sometimes feel like just running away? Just Maybe not Australia. Like for me, I don't know, Australia wouldn't necessarily be my first destination, but there are many days where I wish I could just run away to some peaceful cabin in the woods, you know, off the grid, just no news, no electricity, just a nice peaceful cabin. Or at the very least, there are those days where you just wish you could just pull the covers back over your head and just hide in bed until tomorrow, you know, those sorts of days. But in times of trouble, trial, illness, stress, sorrow, and loneliness, times where we are at the end of ourselves, and we're at the end of our ability to cope. Times where we desperately need help. There is somewhere that we can run and hide that is much better than Australia or a cabin in the woods. Our scripture tells us where that hiding place is, and I invite you to turn there with me this morning to Psalm chapter 46. Psalm chapter 46 has always been one of my favorite psalms. I I say that about many psalms, but this has always been one of my favorites, and uh, we're going to dive into it this morning. So Psalm 46, and there we read the introduction, verse 1 of Psalm 46. It says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. So I'll begin by posing this question, where do we run and hide in times of trouble? And the psalmist answers that question, we hide, we find refuge in God. Now, the Hebrew word for trouble that is used here in this verse is literally talking about this definition, a pressed in, confined, and tight space. 
So it's like that old saying, between a rock and a hard place. So when he says, I'm in times of trouble, he's saying, I'm in a tight spot. I'm between a rock and a hard place. And this is the kind of pressure that the psalmist, the writer of this psalm, is talking about. He's saying, when life presses in, when trouble comes, when we feel that relentless pressure upon us, then we can know that in that sort of a a situation, we have a refuge that we can run to for safety. We can run to for strength and also for help. And like I said, it's not Australia. It's not a cabin in the woods. It's not under our bed covers. The Lord is our refuge and strength. And it doesn't matter what form the troubles take either. It doesn't matter how the troubles come or how long they stay. God, al- God alone is our accessible, protected place of refuge and retreat. And we can hide in him and know that nothing can, can get to us unless it gets through him first. Isn't that reassuring? Nothing can get to us unless it gets through God first because we are hiding in him. He is our refuge. Now, one of the greatest blessings of my life, and and I share this almost as a a testimony, as a confession, if you will. One of the greatest blessings is that I was raised from infancy in a Christian home, under Christian parents. And then under that guidance and the teaching of this church and my parents and the influence of my older brother as well, I entered into a personal relationship with Jesus at the young age of five. And because of that, because of my upbringing, because of making a personal commitment to Jesus at the the age of five, and I've already got a seven-year-old, and he looks so young to me, and and I was five, and and I have a five-year-old too. It just, it seems so young, and at the time, it felt like I was all growing up. I knew the decision I was making. And I look back at that, and and the, the outcome of that is I will never truly know what it's like to live life or to face trouble without God. I will never know what it's like. I've been blessed to have him in my life, to know him my entire life. And so the only downside of that is, if there can really be a downside, but there is a downside to it. And that is for me as a pastor, so often when I look at people around me who are struggling, people who are facing all sorts of of trials and, and circumstances in their life, and they're facing heartaches, and they're facing death, and they're facing loneliness, and they're facing addictions, and all sorts of issues, and they're doing them without God. They're facing them without God. They're facing them without Him. And, and I look at them, and I talk to them, and I have no understanding, no true understanding, no clue, really, of what that is like to face life without God at my side. And, and sometimes I look at them, and I ask myself this question, how do they do it? Like, really, how do you face life without God? How do you face trials and tribulations alone? And as I've observed and listened and studied, what I've learned is that how they do it and how people do it is we all develop our own coping mechanisms. And and we develop these coping mechanisms, whether good or bad or somewhere in between, but we have them and we come to rely on them to help get us through whatever our trouble is. And so they can look as wide a variety as there are people. But here are some of the big coping mechanisms that I see people relying on to help them endure or get past their troubles. Many people depend on their bank accounts, their careers, their possessions to get them through. 
Yeah, things are bad, but at least I've still got money in the bank. I can, I can pay for most of my problems to go away, or I can at least entertain myself with money or possessions to sort of distract myself from my problems or troubles. That's how many people cope. Many more people cope by depending on their personal, physical skills, abilities, or just resilience to get through. You know, I'm just going just gonna to grin and bear it. I'm going to grit my teeth, and, and things will get better. A lot of people face life that way. Many people depend on the distractions of just entertainment or personal pleasures, whatever that looks like, to get them through. You know, life is miserable right now, so I'm at least going gonna, gonna to enjoy something. And, and some of those entertainments may be harmless. Some of them may be very destructive. But whatever they are, people dive into them to say, you know, life is too painful, but I want to get some pleasure out of it, so I'm going to dive into these things to help get me through. Many more people depend on things like personal fitness, nutrition, medication, and our healthcare system to help get us through troubles in life. Most people will, in some way, depend on their families and friendships to help get them through, which, of, of course, is not a bad thing in and of itself. But one thing, and this is what I want to underline for you, one thing that every last one of these coping mechanisms has in common is this. They are all either fallible, fleeting, or capable of failure. Your money, your career, and your possessions, as secure as that may all seem at this moment, those things can all evaporate in an instant. The things that right now you depend on with yourself, your personal skills, your your physical strength, those things as well can disappear like mist in the morning. Entertainment is... Uh, you know, a nice distraction, pleasure can be enjoyable in the moment, but at its very best, it's nothing more than a distraction. Because the moment the entertainment is over, our troubles are still waiting for us on the other side. And pleasure, when we go into pursuing it for its own sake, can lead down a very slippery slope, which can lead to quicksand, sucking us further and further in, always requiring more and more and more of it to satisfy us. It's like any addiction. It starts out at one level. You get, one, you, get, you get the high from one level, but then the next time that same level isn't enough. You need a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, and it drags you in. And it becomes a trap rather than something to help us. As well, physical health. It's something that most of us take for granted until it's gone. And of course, we have modern health care, and it's wonderful And I'm so thankful for things like doctors and medication. But despite all of the help and advances, illness and suffering still remains in our life. And, bottom line is, doctors have still not found a cure for death. Go figure. Right? They're working on it. They still haven't found it. And so, finally, you know, in the most noble category of places that we look for help, family and friends... I am so thankful for my family and friends. I'm so thankful for for those who I can rely on to be a listening ear, to be a support, to be someone who encourages me in times where I'm feeling down. And so I say this next part very carefully. Though family and friends can and are intended to be a part of God's care for us, and yes, we should gladly receive their help and support, they are still human. Therefore, they are still fallible. And sometimes, despite even their best of intentions, when you run to them for refuge, they might fail you or simply be too busy to help you 
or just not understand your hurt or your need and may say or do the wrong thing. And so, in some way, shape, or form, no matter how much you love your family, I think all of us would say in some way they've let us down before. And so, in stark contrast to all of the man-made refuges that we run to, to cope with life and the troubles around us, the psalmist simply and clearly states, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Now, this concise statement reveals three key truths. Three key truths in this one statement. Number one, in God is a secure refuge that does not fail like all the others. In God is a secure refuge that does not fail. That's number one. Number two, in God is not only a place of safety, but it's also a place to receive strength. Notice that. We run there. The psalmist states, God is our refuge and strength. You see, we run into a place of refuge. Why? Because we're weak. We run there because we don't have the answers. We don't have the strength. We run there, but not only do we find protection and safety, but there we find strength. That's number two. And number three, the key truth is, in God, we not only find a place of refuge, a place of strengthening, but number three, in God, we receive help the very moment we need it. Now, has anyone ever had the experience of being in some sort of a medical emergency? And so, whether by ambulance or or just you you drove to the hospital as fast as you could, has anyone ever had had it happen where you end up in the emergency room waiting room? <laughs> Why do emergency rooms have waiting rooms? Has, has anyone ever wondered that? Like, it's an emergency. Why is there a waiting room? Okay, has anyone ever had to wait at the, at the ER? That's what I'm getting at here. Anyone? Okay, there's a lot of hands going up. I've had that experience. It's not a lot of fun when you're in an emergency. Hello, I'm bleeding here. You know, um, the time I was waiting, my, my wrist looked about like this from that snowboarding story I told you about a long time ago. But nonetheless, you're waiting, and you're in pain, and you want help now. And they're like, the doctor's on his way. Uh, yeah, that was 45 minutes ago, right? So now we've all had this experience, or at least know of someone who's had this experience. But in stark contrast, when we run to God, there is no waiting room. God doesn't say, take a number. God doesn't do triage to say, well, I'm going to deal with those who are more important first, or, or the wounds are more severe, and yours is just, you know, you just stubbed your toe, this person's bleeding out over here, I'm going to deal with him first. No, God can do it all simultaneously, because he is God. He is capable of things that no human can even begin to comprehend, and so when we run to God, the psalmist says he is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Don't you just love that? Ever-present means ever-present. He is immediately available exactly the moment we need him. He is always there for you and me, and so we hide in him. The timeless hymn that we've sung in our church many times before, Rock of Ages. It was written way back in 1776 by a man named Augustus M. Toplady. The story goes that Toplady wrote Rock of Ages on the back of a playing card, of all things, while taking refuge during a fierce storm in the cleft of a rock hidden down in a gorge. And so this this sudden storm comes upon him as he's traveling. 
And so you can imagine him caught out in the open, and he sees this cleft in the rock, and he dives in for safety. And so we can just imagine, as the rain, the lightning, and the thunder is roaring around him, safe in this little refuge in the cleft of the rock, these famous words came to him as he wrote them down on that card. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. So let me ask you this morning. Where are you hiding? Where are you hiding in times of refuge? Or pardon me, in times of trouble? Where do you look for strength when you are weak? Where do you run to when times are tough? Let me encourage you to do exactly what he wrote. Let me hide myself in thee. God is the only secure refuge where we can find safety, where we can find strength, and we can find help the moment we need it. So let me encourage you this morning. Whatever your coping mechanisms are in your life, good, bad, or ugly, whatever they are, don't rely on those for the help that you so desperately need. Rely on God. Run to him. He will never fail you. He will strengthen you, and he is always there. So this morning, hide yourself in him, the psalmist would tell us. Number two, the psalmist would tell us this. Believe in him. Believe in him. Verses two and three. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. And so here the psalmist is talking about the kind of overwhelming turmoil of emotions that are so common to all of us in times of trouble. And he illustrates those by using the metaphor of natural disasters. The psalmist probably had plenty of reasons to be afraid as he's writing this psalm. Look at the words he uses here. The the word fear in verse 2 is from a word which describes in Hebrews, in, in the Hebrew language, great emotional pain, turmoil, or distress. Also in verse 2, that phrase that he uses, give way, refers to something being changed in such a dramatic fashion that it could be said to have been removed entirely and have something else put in its place. So it's saying it has totally collapsed, totally given way. And sometimes life feels like that, doesn't it? It feels like there's total collapse, like things are just giving way. And then he goes on to describe that this is like the mountains, the, the, the seemingly immovable, immovable mountains and all their grandeur. He's like, imagine those that seem so fixed, so permanent, so strong, and yet those mountains are falling down into the heart of the sea. Has anyone ever seen a mountain fall down before? I haven't. But the psalmist is using a picture like that, something that seems impossible, and yet it's falling into the heart of the sea, and he uses a word there that describes something which was was apparently immovable, suddenly being toppled. And I think everyone of, of my generation, way back on September 11th, 2001, when when the attack happened on 9-11 and the World Trade Center came, the two towers came crashing down to the ground. I think that's the closest our generation has come to having this sense of seeing something that appeared so fixed, so immovable, so indestructible, and yet before our very eyes we watched them come down to the ground, toppled. This is the kind of feeling, this is the kind of thing that the psalmist is invoking here with his words. 
And so he says, here are things that we've, we've relied on, that we've looked at for, for pillars of strength, and suddenly those things have toppled down. What do we do? And then in verse 3, we see he uses the word roar, a word meaning tumultuous. And it has the idea of something being shaken or moved in such a violent manner that just the shaking will crush or destroy it. Like the waves of the sea beating against the base of a cliff in a hurricane with such force and regularity that even the cliff will erode and fall down into the sea. And then it says that that when this happens, there's a foaming and a boiling that takes place in the water. And this all sounds so violent, so catastrophic. And, And he says... In all of this chaos that he just described, even if those things should happen, listen to this. I will not be overwhelmed with fear. I will not fear in catastrophe, in turmoil, in even the immovable being shaken and thrown into the sea. I will not fear. How is this possible? How is it possible to not fear In these circumstances. Well, the key word is at the very beginning of verse 2. The key word is therefore. Therefore. It means on the basis of what has just been declared in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear, though the worst of the worst happens to me. The worst thing I could possibly imagine has just happened in my life, but still, because of verse 1, I will not fear. And so what the psalmist is saying, to paraphrase, he's saying, because of what I believe about God, what I've experienced of God, what I know to be true of God, therefore, let even the worst thing that I can possibly imagine come true, and I will not be afraid. What an incredible statement. What a a powerful statement. And it all stems from this Deep personal belief in God. Deep confidence in God. Faith in God. Faith that he is real, that he is there, that he is able, that he is present. And yes, that he will help me. Not just other people. He will help me. And we all need to know that. We all need to hear that because we all on some level believe that yes, God's at work in the world and yes, God will help other people and I've heard testimonies and that's great for you but you know what, God? I need help. Will you help me? And the psalmist is making a personal declaration. Yes, I believe that God will help even me. And so though life tosses us around and the things that we lean on can suddenly disappear, we believe. And though circumstances are tumultuous and uncertain, we believe. And though the situation that would crush any other person on their own with God, we are not crushed. And so we believe. And though all our hopes and dreams suddenly seem to wash out from under us, we believe. And we will not even fear. Why? Because God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. And so, number one, we we hide in him. Number two, we believe in him. And number three, the psalmist would say, we depend on him for everything. Verses four and five. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Now, verse four gives us now a sharp contrast from verse three. 
In verse 3, we saw boiling foam of the sea, mountains falling down, but now we have this picture of a peaceful river and stream flowing. But there is more than just contrast, it's speaking about God's provision. You see, one of the primary concerns of any city in the ancient Middle East was that they would be besieged by an invading army. It happened all the time. We read it throughout Scripture. So when a siege happened, there were three things that were absolutely necessary for the survival of a city. Number one, the abundance of food. Number two, fortifications, of course, for the wall to be strong enough to hold out the army. And number three, and most critical of all, was to have an an adequate source of clear, fresh drinking water. And many of the ancient cities, of course, would have strong walls to protect them. And they were good at constantly storing up food against the day that they might be besieged. But what about the water supply? Now, in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 30, it tells us that among many other things that the great reforming king named King Hezekiah, one of the things that he did to strengthen the city of Jerusalem, he masterminded a brilliant construction project which would provide an endless supply of water to the city even during a siege, no matter how long it lasted. And there's this small spring called Gihon, which came to the surface just outside of Jerusalem. So it would be outside of the city walls. And so Hezekiah had that spring stopped up. Then he built a tunnel through 1,749 feet of solid rock to the spring so that the waters of the spring of Gahon could flow into the city underground that, that no invading army could get at. And it's called this to this day Hezekiah's Tunnel. And it's still actually in use to this very day. And unfortunately, when Leanne and I did our trip to Israel, we didn't get to visit Hezekiah's tunnel. But my parents, when they went, they did. And my dad told me it was one of their highlights to walk down in the tunnel, actually like wading up to their, I think, knees or even past in the water. And so here, the psalmist is referring directly to this source of water, this continuous source of water deep in the earth. And by drawing upon this metaphor, the psalmist was reminding the people who were, who were worshiping and listening That in God, they had a constant, never-ending source of provision. Constant, like the spring of Gahon. Deep, like Hezekiah's tunnel. Impenetrable to the enemy's attack or assault. It is a fresh, clean source of water that flows without end. And the psalmist is telling us that we can depend on God to be there with that fresh provision, even during the times of siege in our lives. Even during times of drought. It's always there and will never run dry. And so we have a choice when trouble comes, when when sieges come. We can just wring our hands and worry, or we can tap down into the ever-flowing, never-ending springs of life beneath the surface from God himself, the source of all life. And so that's number three. We remember, pardon me, we depend on God for every provision. And then number four, we remember that God is in control of everything. Verses 6 to 9. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Now, does it seem to any of you as though nations are in uproar these days? Anyone? Does it seem that way? 
Is there any politicking going on in the world these days? Does it, does it seem like politics and culture are more scary and divisive and explosive than ever before? I sometimes get the feeling like we're sitting right on top of a powder keg, like in one of those Looney Tunes things where it's like Wile E. Coyote is trying to get the Roadrunner and he sets up all his dynamite and somehow he ends up on top of it and it's just about to go off and there's that moment of realization and his eyes are big. I kind of feel like we're, we're like him right now, sitting on this powder keg and our eyes are big, but it hasn't gone off yet. But whatever happens in the world, we look around and things are pretty tense. But guess what? That's not anything new. It's been happening for ages and ages and ages. Just as certainly as kingdoms rise and fall, God's eternal rule and control over all things, including leaders and nations and politics, his control is still absolute. God would have but to lift his voice one time above the clamor, and the entire earth would melt at its sound. Isn't that something? All the noise that we hear constantly. The psalmist says, one time God speaks, the earth melts. That's it. He is absolutely in control. He is not wringing his hands. He's not perplexed at all the noise in the world around us. So if he's not perplexed, we don't need to be. So don't let the uproar of the nations and the upheaval of politics or the threat of war get to you. Remember, God is in control of everything. And remember the promise that the day is coming where he will make all wars cease to the ends of the earth forever. That is the day of Jesus' return and his eternal rule of righteousness and peace that will reign throughout the whole earth. And we long for that day. And so we remember today that he is still in control. And we look forward and we pray for the day of his eternal rule. And we strive for that day. So remember that God is in control of everything. And then finally, number five, the psalmist would tell us, in times of trouble, be still before God. Verses 10 and 11, he says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So here in times of difficulty, one of our first impulses is always to take matters into our own hands. And so we get up and we want to figure it out. We want to fix the problem. We, we spring into action. And while it is true that there are times that God wants us to get up and act in faith, there are also times when he wants us to sit down and be quiet before him in faith. You see, there are situations where no matter how hard we try, We only make things worse. And God says to us, be still. Be still and know that I am God, not you. (laughs) We need to hear that sometimes. I am God, not you. And only I can fix this. So be still and trust me. But we seem to think that unless we are doing something, well, it's not going to get done. But that attitude is rooted in fear, not faith. Fear says, I'm afraid that God will not come through for me in this thing, so I've got to take care of it myself. But again, that's fear, not faith. For in reality, being still before God is not just the only thing we can do sometimes, but being quiet and still before him is often the best thing we can do. Because in humbly acknowledging who he is, recognizing who we are, 
before him, we are actually inviting him to give us the help that only he can. There's a man whose life exemplifies this. His name is George Mueller. Many of you will have heard of him. He lived from 1805 to 1898, a long life. And in that long life, George Mueller built many orphanages in Ashleydown, England. And so his story goes that without a personal salary, Mueller relied only on God to supply the money and food needed to support the hundreds of homeless children that he took in in the name of Christ. A man of just, known of just radiant faith, he kept a motto on his desk for years that he kept reading over and over again that brought him comfort, strength, and uplifting confidence in his heart no matter what he was facing. And it read simply, It matters to him about you. It matters to him about you. And he testified at the end of his life that the Lord had never once failed to supply every one of his needs. But George Mueller was not always a person of such great faith and good character. In fact, as a young boy growing up in Germany in the early 1800s, George often stole money from his dad. Then as a teenager, he snuck out of a hotel twice without paying for the room, and the second time he was caught by police and put into jail for it. Then as a college student, George loved going to bars, drinking, gambling, and being the life of the party. He also particularly enjoyed making fun of people. He was, he was known to be a bit of a bully, and especially he loved targeting Christians. He loved picking on Christians. But one day, a Christian friend, I'm surprised he had any, but he had one, a Christian friend invited George to go to an off-campus Bible study. And he went only because he wanted to have more ammunition to make fun of Christians later on. What a guy. But to his surprise, he went to the study expecting to find more ammunition, but instead... He actually enjoyed it. And for the first time, he saw people who really knew and loved God, and he kept attending each evening. And before the end of the week, he finally knelt at his bedside, and he asked God to forgive his sins. He asked Jesus to become the Lord of his life. And George's friends saw an immediate change in his behavior, because right off the bat, he was no longer going to bars or making fun of people constantly. He spent more time reading his Bible, talking about God, and going to church And soon, he found out that his old friends didn't even want to hang out with him anymore. When George told his dad that he had decided finally to become a missionary, even his father became upset. He wanted George to have a good, high-paying job, not to be some poor missionary. He told George that he wouldn't give him any more, more money for school. And so George knew that if God was calling him to be a missionary, then he was going to provide for him, even if his dad wouldn't. And so George went and enrolled in Bible college without even knowing how he was going to pay his tuition. He didn't have a dollar to his name. And he did something that at this moment of his life he thought was extremely silly for a grown man to do, but he got down on his knees at his bedside and he just prayed a prayer asking God, provide for my tuition. He didn't really expect anything to happen, but to his utter surprise, one hour later, a professor knocked on his bedroom door. He offered George a full paid tutoring job that would cover all of his tuition. Well, George was amazed. But this was just the beginning of his dependency on God. And over the many years of service, trials, and God's provision, it led to this well-known account. Years later, while running one of his famous orphanages, the house mother of the orphanage informed George Mueller, the children are dressed and ready for school, but there is no food for them to eat. 
And so George asked her to take the 300-some children into the dining room and have them sit at the tables as before. He then stood at the head of the table, and he thanked God for the food, and he waited. George believed that God would provide for the children as he always did. And as all the children looked very skeptically at empty dishes sitting in front of them, within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. I got up and baked three batches for you. You, here it is, I'm bringing it in. As the bread is now being unlaid before them on the table, soon after was another knock on the door, and it was a milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed, and he asked George if he could use the free milk. George just smiled at the milkman as he brought in ten large cans of fresh milk. It was just enough for the 300-some thirsty children. My friends, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. So let me encourage you today, hide in him, believe in him, Depend on him for everything. Remember that he is in control of everything. Be still before him. And then just watch and wait for what he will do for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are such a good father. As the Lord Jesus told us, If even we earthly dads know how to give some good gifts to our children, how much more don't you, the Heavenly Father, the perfect and holy one, know how to give good gifts to those who ask? And so, Father, this morning, I just pray that for everyone who's here this morning, whatever they're facing, whatever their trouble is, Lord, would you just by your Spirit just prod, encourage them that they can run right now to you. They don't have to wait around. They don't have to think about it. They can go right now, this moment, to you. And in you, you will be ready to welcome them, to provide refuge, to provide a place where no matter what's coming at them, no matter what the pressure is, you'll say, I'll take that pressure because it's got to get through me before I'm going to let it get to my child. And so I pray, Lord, that that they would find that in you. And I pray, Lord, that this would come from just no matter how basic it is, a basic level of faith to believe that you are there to take you at your word and to run to you and to discover that you are not only real, but you are there, you care, and you will provide just as you have promised. And so, Father, in you we find our strength and in you we find our ever-present help in times of trouble, not a week late, not a year late, but when we need it, you are there and you will provide so graciously. And so, Father, today we simply ask Give us the faith to believe in you the way that George Mueller did. And Lord, we recognize that doesn't just happen on its own. It happens through a lifelong pursuit of you and seeing you at work. And so we welcome that work, Lord, in our individual lives. We welcome that work in our church family. And Lord, we welcome so much that work in our town and in our nation. Because Lord, as we've looked around this morning even briefly, we recognize things are in upheaval. Everyone seems to be perplexed and angry. There are so many loud voices in our world today, but we thank you that you are in control and that as we look to you, we will not fear, for you are in control, and one day you will bring your perfect peace to rule, not only in our hearts, but on this earth. And we pray and long for that day as well. So Lord Jesus, we pray that until that day, may we be faithful to trust in you 
and to do what you've asked us to do with your strength. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.